Your attention, please. The Thunder Mesa Limited, now leaving for a grand circle tour through the realms of Imagineering, Model Railroading, and Disney Trains. All passengers, board! Howdy folks, welcome aboard the Thunder Mesa Limited. I'm your host Dave Mee, coming to you from Thunder Mesa Studio in historic Jerome, Arizona. And this is the show where we talk to all kinds of creative folks from the worlds of Imagineering, Model Making, Trains, and Disney. This is Season 2, Episode 4, and today we are talking with professional model maker Jake Johnson. Jake is a former senior dimensional designer with Walt Disney Imagineering, and he continues to work as a custom model railroad builder, model maker for movies and TV, and as a kit designer for Crescent Creek Models. Jake is recently returned from the 42nd Annual National Narrow Gauge Convention in Seattle, Washington, and he joins us for a third time here on the Thunder Mesa Limited to talk about that, along with the art and science of model railroading. But first, a quick reminder that the Thunder Mesa Limited podcast is brought to you by Crescent Creek Models. Crescent Creek Models specializes in innovative laser-cut structure kits for the discerning model railroader and collector. With products available in HO, S, and O scales, Crescent Creek Models brings the charm and nostalgic appeal of 19th and early 20th century architecture to life in miniature. You can find out more at CrescentCreekModels.com. And now, our chat with Jake Johnson. We spoke with Jake via Skype, and the interview has been edited for length and clarity. Hi, Jake! Thanks for doing Hi, this, Jay. man. How are you doing today? I'm doing okay. How are things in Colorado? How's the weather out there? The weather is beautiful here. It's fall. Yeah. Uh, I, I did a little drive the other day, and the trees are starting to turn. Ooh. In fact, in Silverton, there's trees that are green, yellow, red, and orange. Right. It's, it's spectacular. We should catch everybody up. I mean, usually, I talk to Jake. He's out in, uh, in L.A., where he lives most of the time. Right now, he's in Colorado working on a, uh, a model railroad project, a custom model railroad build for a client. So he's been sp he spent the summer up in Ridgeway, Colorado. So, yeah, cool. Nice work if you can get it, right? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. The best kind. The best kind. Being a professional model railroader is, is, is a real treat. Yes, it is, isn't it? It's not bad. Hey, you, you just got back, and you took some time off. You went up to uh, Seattle for the uh, 42nd Annual National Narrow Gauge Convention that they were holding up there at the beginning of September. What, what, what's your, what was your number one takeaway from the convention this year? What, what, what's, what's the thing that pumps, pops into your mind first about it? Where are all the people? Really? Okay. So it was it was more sparsely attended. Now you go to all these things. See, I am such a homebody. I hardly ever leave Arizona. It's like an event if I leave the state. And but you 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 travel. You went to the 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 uh, the, the Golden Spike thing. You went to you know you go to all of these rail events. You go to uh, the national conventions and stuff that Ch stuff I, I, like I, that. I went to Chama for right? the Victorian Iron Horse Roundup. I went to the Nevada Steam Up. Mm -hmm. These are things that kind of go hand in hand for me with a hobby. I got to enjoy yeah. the real thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. You know, and it's, it's funny because I, I hearken back to before I really knew you and, and I would be looking at pictures online and stuff of all these events. And I was like, there's that guy again. <laughs> 
you're at you're at every single one of these things. You're like you're like uh, uh, you know you just show up in 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 the, in the background of all of these photos. I'm like, there's that guy. Uh, yeah, so so the that's convention. Life, that's your social life. Well, that's pretty cool. Uh, so the uh, the convention was was sparsely attended this year. That's I've heard that from some other people too. Yeah, and I, I can't really uh, put a finger on it, other than, hey, maybe people don't want to travel to Seattle. Maybe uh, things financially are tougher. Mm -hmm. um, people are coming back from COVID, and and not everybody's ready to go out. So right. there was some limiting factors, I, I think, in terms of uh, numbers. Right. But it still felt like a narrow gauge convention. It was, you know, clinics start at nine o'clock. Right. Uh, there's vendors, there's layout tours, and the last clinic is over at 10 p.m. So you are running, running, running mm -hmm. all day long. What was your, what was the best clinic in your opinion? What was your favorite one that you did? Oh, my favorite clinic. Shoot. Um, there was a clinic on water. That was good. Yeah. Um, all, all the different techniques of water to use. Uh, there was some techniques... Oh, a guy named Don Railton, mm -hmm. who's an excellent diorama builder, scratch builder, artist. Uh, Don Railton gave a presentation on uh, model making mm -hmm. and what he does. And what he also mentioned were some of his favorite model makers. And he gave us some uh, some names. Yeah. And I started following them all on Instagram cool. so that, you know, someday I can be inspired to be a better model maker. <laughs> Yeah, you know, if you if you work hard at it, if you keep doing, if you keep at it, you you will you will progress eventually. I think eventually I'll I'll get my uh, my model making merit badge. You you you'll get your uh, your master model maker. Uh. Uh, master model maker, <laughs> yes, maybe not master model railroader. <laughs> Someone told I'm me. I'm not that, sure if I'm NMRA material. Uh, yeah, me either. Uh, someone suggested to me the other day. He's like, Dave, you, you've done this and you've done this, and you should apply the NMRA. You could you could get your master model railroader. I'm like, I'm not a joiner of things. You know, I'm just I never have been. <laughs> I think you're kind of the same way. You know, it's just uh, yeah. You know this this brings an interesting point. I listened to your live feed yeah. earlier this week, mm -hmm. and you were building your uh, your graveyard. Yes, and. What I found most interesting were the comments coming in. Mm -hmm. And you have given a voice to non-traditional model railroading and model making. That was my and goal. And I think <laughs> you laugh. Yeah. I think that these people don't want to be in the NMRA. They don't want to model a specific prototype. Mm -hmm. Or the specific thing that they want to model is a TV show or a comic book or some other artistic uh, property or, or interest that they have. Right. And in some cases, I don't even think these people should be building model railroads. They should be building models. Dioramas, yeah. Dioramas. Yeah. Maybe uh, maybe they're all frustrated Imagineers and really want to design theme parks, but right. they, they just kind of want to have their own little theme park model at home. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing wrong with this. And you're giving a voice to these people because the model railroad press really expects you to conform to what these guys have been doing for years. And, and you, like I say, you're giving a voice to some non-traditional ideas and, and you found, you found a 
well, thank a crowd you. who appreciates it. Thank you. That is that's a merit badge I will wear. <laughs> you enjoy wearing that badge. I, I I enjoy that. I enjoy that that position of of outsider and pushing the boundaries because um, as someone growing up, you know, like you in the seventies and and eighties and 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 uh, well. I was already grown in the 80s, but, you know, and, and reading the Model Railroad Press and seeing the shift from, you know, your John Olson's and your and your uh, John Allen's and, and your Malcolm Furlow's a little later to a much more kind of hard nosed uh, rivet counter, for lack of a better uh, uh, term, approach to the model modeling and. Uh, you know, it kind of turned me off a little bit, and you know, I, I and I think people that are prototype modelers and do and can do it well, and uh, and uh, uh, are fantastic. That's that's a great a, a great thing to to go after. If you have a specific prototype, if that's what inspires you to build a model, then go do it. And if it's you know Petticoat Junction inspires you to build a model, go do that. <laughs> <laughs> or the Wild Wild West, or something. Uh, it's all because, as I've always said, it's all just telling a story. Some people want to tell a a, a, a true story based on actual events. Some people want to tell, tell a made up story. It's just all what resonates with you. And I gave myself permission to do that, and now I'm giving other people permission to do that. Please go, you know, go build something cool. <laughs> That's all I ask. Well, the prototype modelers, it, it's kind of a two-edged sword because I think we've, I, I, I don't know when this started, but mm -hmm. the technology and the research right. and the rivet counting is much, uh, results in a much higher fidelity product than, say, 30 years ago. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So if you want to be a prototype modeler and you're willing to do the homework, it's there. Mm -hmm. However... It's a different kind of artist artistry yeah. than the things that we're talking about, the, the Malcolm Furloughs and, and, and the John Allen. Right. It's what I call story-based modeling. It's basically, right. I should say it, fiction, fictional story-based modeling, really. Uh, but, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. That fidelity to prototype has given us much better products on the market to use. But to me, it's all just raw materials. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's just, it, it's a starting point. But, it makes model railroading more like a job because you become mm. a researcher and you become mm -hmm. a, a fabricator of very specific things. It's yeah. not loose. Yeah. It's, 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 it's very specific. Yeah. 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 There's a lot, you know, there, we could go on and on about this, but, um, yeah, and I enjoy research. I I love going down those rabbit holes and finding out this and that about the, you know the thing. But I you know I and uh, you know you're an SN3 modeler, and you are specifically focused on Colorado narrow gauge. That's what you uh, that's what you love. That's what sure turns you on. That's what you want to do, and you know that's fantastic. Some of the best modeling I've ever seen in this hobby has been uh, you know Colorado narrow gauge. There's just something about that uh, that era, and you know, and I've kind of taken that and put it in a different locale with a little bit more, you know, some Disney thrown in for for good measure. But anyway, we're not here to talk about me. 
<laughs> well, I, I just you bring up an interesting point about O scale and narrow gauge. Mm -hmm. Narrow gauge has been around for a long time. Yeah. And I think it really started with O scale. Mm -hmm. I think ON3 narrow gauge is is like the original narrow gauge hobby. Oh yeah, yeah. And, and I think that's where the roots of all this uh, come from. Right. And we've probably talked about this before somewhere else, but I think the interest in Colorado, personally for me, is because I came here as a kid and fell in love with it. But it's a it's a, going to Colorado is a place you can actually see and ride a narrow gauge train. It's not to say that there aren't others, right? But there's a lot of it. There's so much of it that still exists there. Yeah, there's right. a lot of miles of track. There's a mm -hmm. lot of pieces of equipment. Right. There's a lot of locations that still exist, and so it feeds the imagination. So I, I'm gonna I'm gonna quit talking about that. And let, we'll, we'll get back to our other stuff. But that's that's kind of <laughs> why I see that right. as a uh, as a popular thing thing with folks is they can they can they can relate to it. They can explore it. Right. Right. Well, you know, and that's it's so true. If you can actually go and ride uh, the 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 uh, Durango and Silverton, or or uh, you know the train out of Chama, or the Georgetown Loop, or any of those uh, remnants of of the old Colorado narrow gauge system, you know, it's it's going to give you a a real insight into what you're doing. <laughs> you know, the sights and the sounds. There's nothing quite like standing trackside. And having <clears throat> one of those uh, narrow gauge engines roll by you, uh, and, and just because it, it's like a, a living thing, you know, this chuffing and this we're talking steam, of course, not not those diesel abominations that they're <clears throat> running on the Durango and Silverton these days. But uh, yeah, there's just something amazing about it. It's 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 a visceral experience you can't get any other way. Well, speaking of visceral experiences, I went to Ridgeway Railroad Days today. Right on. And rode in an internal combustion contraption. Oh, a goose? No, they have recreated uh, inspection car RGS number one. Oh, number one, uh, yeah. Out of an old Model T. Right, right, right. So it is it is pre-goose. Right, that's the 1913 uh, RGS number one, not the yes. 1931 RGS number one. Yes, that's For those that's keeping correct. track at home. Which was made, the 31 was made from a Buick, and the yeah. 13, yeah. 1913 was a little teeny thing the size of a Model T, and there are some models of it out there. So you got to ride in the recreation of that. That's awesome. I did. You yeah. know, we, we have uh, Carl Schaefer and his team to thank for the reproduction goose and the reproduction inspection car. Mm -hmm. They're neat little pieces. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just built the. I learned this lesson the hard way because I just, I just, uh, I acquired one of the Bachman models of the 1931 <clears throat> RGS number one, and I did a video on it and everything where I, you know, I swapped out, I made bodies for uh, for the for the uh, bed, and I stupidly called it 19 the 1913 version. And boy, if you if you say something wrong on YouTube, let me tell you, you'll find out. <laughs> pretty funny because it's there you know it's there repository you can't go back and edit later and change it it's just there it's like okay well you just have to own your mistakes yes i screwed it up but <clears throat> it's still a lovely those model. rivet counters got to you dave they did they, no those were date counters, date counters. <laughs> goose counters goose goose counters right so anyway back to the 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 national derogates convention which started this off so it was lightly attended the clinics were good 
the layout tour, the, the models, was there, there was, so there wasn't a lot of models there to see or less than usual? No, but, but there was some good ones. There <clears throat> yeah. was some, uh, oh, oh, okay. What would get the Jake Johnson award? Uh, okay, uh, Brian Block. Uh-huh. Is is a uh, repeat offender in terms of uh, <laughs> bringing some really nice models. Yeah. And Brian Block did a square footer. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to go look through my photos here while I'm on my magical computer and talking to you at the same time. Let oh. me see. Jake is multitasking. Everybody stand yes, by. Yes, I am. It's, uh, <laughs> it's a motorboat or uh-huh. a fishing boat. Yeah. At a dock, and it, it was called uh, the structure was called the trap and bait, and mm-hmm. the entire thing sits on about an inch of water, square foot inch of water, with all sorts of plant life and debris down yeah. below. Every imaginable detail mm-hmm. on the edge of the dock, plenty of great weathering, yeah, uh, um, an interior. He just did an amazing job. Brian has uh, competed at other narrow gauge conventions, and he's really got an amazing talent. So, what, what, what scale was this in? Well, O scale. Mm, okay. And this this is something that that I wanted to share with you. Um, anytime I see a model win at the narrow gauge convention, most of the time it's an O scale model. It's not an <laughs> HO model. It's not an SN3 model. <clears throat> mm-hmm. It's O scale, right? And I, I have I have reasons to believe why this happens. O scale is popular. The narrow gauge, yeah, uh, contest is a popular vote, right? And they've been making castings forever, right? Okay, that's assuming that you're not scratch building things, but right. kits and scratch building and bits. Uh, yeah, all those wonderful detail parts are They're available. plentiful in yeah. O scale. Right. And Much harder to find in S, my, yeah. What's that? Much harder to find a lot of that stuff in S scale, SN3. Oh, it's example. just not out there. You, you yeah. start 3D printing stuff, and, mm-hmm. and then I'm just going to spend my hobby drawing things on the computer, which we've already talked about. There. Right. <laughs> Yawn. Yeah. So he did that, and and you know you look at model uh, model companies like Sierra West, yeah, who uh, has the old Charlie Brommer line, and he's starting to 3D print stuff, and he he just produces some amazing stuff. And I think if I ever really wanted to compete on the contest level at mm-hmm. a narrow gauge convention, I'd have to build O scale models. Yeah, you think so? Would, really? Well, they wouldn't fit on my layout, but they might win an award if I put enough time and effort into them. Yeah. Is that what you want? Do you want to win an award? You know, I came really close to winning an award, and I got second place. And uh, I was like, oh, It's like man. kissing your sister. And, and some guy who, who made an O-scale model won. So, but, you know, I got a yeah. nice second place trophy. Yeah. I think the details have something to do with it, and also the heft. I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a heft to, to O-scale models that they have... In our relationship as one-to-one humans to the model, it's a pleasing. Um, I'm, I'm, what am I trying to say here? It, it's a pleasing uh, uh, ratio, I, I guess. Uh, it, it's they are sized nicely f- to view as full-scale humans. Does that make sense? I, absolutely. If, yeah. if, if you're if you're a six-foot-tall human and you're looking at an inch and a half 
uh, tall person on an O-scale model. Have I got my measurements right? You do. Congratulations. Okay, good. Um, <laughs> you can get in there and look at it, and right. there's just so much you can do. And, right. and like I say, the, the detail parts are there, but I think I think to your point, it's easy on the eyes. Right. There you go. Thank and you. Yeah. That gets to my next point. F-scale has mm. also been a very uh, popular modeling scale for the contest and, and, and winners yeah. in F scale. Right. Um, last year, somebody put together an entire DNRG uh, passenger train and got wow. some awards. How Gage long convention. was that? Did they lay it all out in, in, in a line? Because that would be... I don't think they put them in line because in F scale, that's pretty long. They, 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 uh, they, they, they diagonally parked the cars. Ah, okay. <laughs> they would have to, I was going to say, because that would be like 20 feet long. Well, and, and uh, you know, a DNRG passenger train, a San Juan train is at least four cars. Right. So, you know, baggage, RPO, a coach, right. a parlor car. Right. So, you know, and, and the locomotive was there with it. So guys are doing F-scale. This year in F-scale, somebody made a turn-of-the-century K-27 out of a Bachman uh, plastic K-27. Wow. So it had the big, fancy numbers on the tender. It had mm -hmm. the slope back tender. It, it had the extended smoke box of the spoked pilot wheels. Yeah. Uh, just a few different things, different set of cylinders, if I'm not mistaken. So there's a few backdating things yeah. uh, that are necessary. But, boy, you know, it, it's got heft. Yeah. And, you know, you walk over to the locomotive table at the contest, and you're like, wow, that's impressive. Um, and it's in F scale and, you know, everybody likes a K27. I'll vote for that one. <laughs> right. You know, <laughs> what about HON3? Was there any H? Was there, I'm sure there was some represented, but you no, know, I'm going to look because I didn't even take pictures. It gets to the point where you look at an HO model and the competition isn't there mm. because they can't do as much with it. It's just right. not, right. um, and I'm not knocking HON3, it just doesn't present well in, that, in a contest setting. In, in that setting. kind of contest, yeah. yeah. Because it's so tiny. And and I know guys are doing tiny little things in HO scale, and, mm -hmm. and they can really do it. But HO scale, if you're going to make a contest model in HO scale and you want to wow the popular vote, it needs to have mass. It needs to be an entire stamp mill, or it needs to be... Yeah, a diorama or something. Yeah. Very large structure. Yeah. Um, but somehow still fits on the table. And <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, I didn't see a lot of HO models and, mm -hmm. and I think that people well, are out there doing some great modeling in HO, but they realize they can't compete in the contests and, and they just. And you talk about availability of just stuff. I mean, that, that stream is pretty much dried up for, for HON3. Unless, well, it, 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 are you talking about new product? New product, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, unfortunately, Blackstone uh, got a bunch of people excited about HON three, and then and then we uh, they haven't, yeah, they haven't <laughs> been able to maintain right. a, a product flow. Right. Yeah. It's just too bad. It is too bad. Um, because I was looking at those Blackstone uh, locomotives and going, "Wow, those are those are pretty cool. They sound great. They run great. They look pretty good." Made me think, hmm, HON3. I could do something in HON3 in my spare time. No. Um, anyway, so the, your your overall takeaway from the convention was 
good modeling, good clinics, not as well attended as previous years. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Dave, Dave, I saw an N scale layout. And N3? No, no, just N scale standard. Just straight N scale? Yeah. Straight N scale. And I know, you know, we've, we, we have an audience of people that has varying opinions of N scale. <laughs> And this guy would make a believer out of you in terms yeah. of how good N scale is. It was his entire basement. Wow. Okay. And it was an operator's layout. Mm -hmm. And it operated well. It had really nice scenery. You could tell that he, he's the kind of guy who's probably wanting to have about six people or more over operating in his basement doing all the prototype uh, role-playing jobs that one right. finds themselves doing on an operating session. Right, right. Well, that's fun. So you, you did so, some, so the layout tours you did, the, so there was a cool N-scale one. What was the name yeah. of the railroad, do you remember? Uh, you know, Dave, I brought... You have notes? <laughs> I, I brought my guide with me. Oh, good. I just happened to have it, and I was like, oh, this will be really great to, to, to use. Uh, to kind of, uh, oh man, let's see. Uh, this is going to take a little more research. <laughs> it's okay if you can just pull it up. That's fine. No, but it was it was a really impressive N scale layout, and and he he just really did an amazing job. And it was an, like I say, it was an operator's layout. Yeah. Um, what, what was the era? It was contemporary. Yeah. I think that's really your best bet in N scale. Because it's a lot easier so to get things to, drive, to run well, that's for sure. Not yeah. only run well, but it's a lot easier to find product. I mm -hmm. would hate to have a steam era N-scale railroad. I think I'd, I'd, uh, I'd be in trouble. As someone who uh, tried to build several steam era N-scale layouts when I was a young man, I, I concur. I, <laughs> it, was, it was always like uh, there was nothing and you couldn't get them to run. <clears throat> that would drive you to drink, Dave. <laughs> it would drove me to other scales. It drove me to HO and then to finally to ON30. That's what it did. That's great. Yeah, yeah. So uh, what was your favorite? Was was the N scale your favorite tour, or did you see see another one you liked better? No, there's there's two layouts I, I'm really fond of, and I've seen them more than once. Um, uh, Dale Kreutzer and... Uh, Bill Basaka both have SN3 Rio Grande Southern layouts. Uh -huh. I, I, I'm, I'm kind of wearing my nerd card. Uh, your card, your, your prejudice for, yeah. for RGS and SN3. <laughs> well, years ago, Mike Blazek, who who was an mm -hmm. inspiration to me a long time ago and, and, yeah. uh, as, a, as a model maker, he built a number of structures for a gentleman who was building an RGS layout. Yeah. He in turn sold them and Bill bought them. And so he's got... A Rico Depot with all individual shingles on it. He's got mm. a Pro Patria mill. He's got uh, a Rico engine house. Yeah. And so he's got all these great structures that Mike built, and he's built a railroad around it, and that's pretty impressive. Um, Dale Kreutzer has uh, an RGS layout. He's just a few miles away, but he modeled a different portion mm. of the Rio Grande Southern. Yeah. Thankfully, he's using photo backdrops. Oh. And he's blended his photo backdrops exceptionally well into That's his hard foreground to do. scenery. That's hard to do. Yeah. That's it is. an art in itself. Yeah, I think he spent a lot of time on the computer putting that stuff together. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, I had a lot of trips to Colorado taking just the right photos with just the right lighting. Just the he right angle. He had to be angle. everywhere at the same time on, you know, several days. Right. To get right. to all those locations. Wow. He's an interesting guy because he hand laid Code 55 and Code 40 rail with his own handmade spikes. Wow. His yeah. own handmade spikes in SN3. Yes. Those would be teeny tiny. They would be very tiny. He, <laughs> I, he's making them out of music wire or, or uh, right? guitar wire or something. But yeah, to, to sit down and have the patience to bend all those spikes and trim them right. and then insert them. Right. Oh, my God. I thought I had patience. That's uh, that's that's kind of the definition of tedium. My hat's off. <laughs> and to well, hand, and to hand, then go in and hand lay all the track too. When you get below code seventy, the mm -hmm. rail is just not as sturdy. Right. It's fickle. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's noodly. Yeah. It's noodly. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I, I I usually don't use anything less than eighty three, but that's. Just because oh, I like things layout. to be easy. <laughs> yeah. One more layout. Um, Michael Connell of Chooch Products, or formerly of Chooch Products, yeah. has a giant O-scale Proto 48 layout in his custom-built barn. And it's two levels mm -hmm. of Great Northern Washington. Yeah. All set up for operations. Plenty of resin cast buildings that he's designed and built. Yeah. He's even cast the track in resin. Really? Now that's interesting. And that's not something I would have thought to do because resin shrinks. Well, I, I think the shrink has already happened, but what he's done is he's modeled ties, tie plates, mm -hmm. and ballast all is one piece and then he hand spikes and drills all the spikes into that track and he's got turnouts and he's got straight right. and curved sections and it's all proto 48 so he yeah. had to make it one way or another yeah that's true there's nothing off the shelf really uh you know I, I, and i'm just thinking i'm just imagining my wife listening to this conversation and thinking everyone in your hobby is insane <laughs> Because that does not sound like, none of that sounds like fun to me. <laughs> Michael Connell used to be a Disney Imagineer in the model shop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, so you, you know, to be a model maker, and let me tell you, there's a couple of things, just as an aside here. To be a model builder, uh, to be a dedicated model builder, and especially to be a professional model builder, you, there's a few things. You have to enjoy um, tedious <laughs> tasks, <laughs> repetitive, tedious tasks, and uh, and and you and you talk to yourself. That's the other thing. You talk to yourself a lot while you're doing it, and and cuss when when that little tiny SN3 rail spike that you just had in your pliers a second ago vanishes. It's like it's gone. <laughs> Those of you listening um, can relate, I'm sure. Oh gosh, there was something else about Mike I wanted to. I told you he was Imagineer. Um, yeah. I, I think that I think that covers it, but just a spectacular layout, yeah. and and uh, Mike's a super nice guy. Yeah. Do we well, want to tell people what Proto Forty Eight is? That's probably a good idea. Why don't you explain it? Sure. O scale tube rail is uh, 
148 scale is actually five feet across. Okay. Right. Standard gauge, as we all know, is uh, four feet, eight and a half inches. Uh -huh. So there's a select group of O scale who want to call themselves Proto 48 who have decided to take the track and model it at the correct four feet, eight and a half inches, which I, I, somebody's going to come and uh, comment, but I don't notice the difference. Right. <laughs> However, um, I, I'm proud of them for going the extra mile. Mm -hmm. they're, they're having to um, replace the trucks, overhaul the trucks. They're having to take locomotives and push the wheels in mm -hmm. on the axles right. for that extra bit of difference. Uh, let's see, eight and a half, four feet, eight and a half inches. That's three and a half scale inches in O scale. What does that work out to be? That's that's uh, three and a half scale. That's uh, this. That's between a sixteenth of an inch and uh, three thirty seconds of an inch. So not very big. No, but these guys are, are super prototype rivet counters. Mm -hmm. They're doing some exceptional track work with tie plates and, and yeah. fish plates and joint bars and every imaginable right. imaginable detail part on a turnout. Right. right. Because they can. Right. And and I should also add there was there's proto eighty seven modelers too in oh, HO. Yeah, in they've HO. Done that too. <clears throat> who wanted to model uh, HO scale, 187th point, whatever it is. I can never, not even remember the decimal. This <laughs> in exactitude. Uh, the thing is, is that all of these scales and gauges that we use today are inher inherited from the, the 30s and 40s when they came up with manufacturing processes for these things and tried to do it as expediently as possible, but still, you know, have it something that'll work. So it's, it's, you know, we're always just trying to deal with that. So yeah, Proto 48 and Proto 87, my hat's off to you guys. I mean, that's, um, anybody can do that. I mean, that's, that's a level of, of patience and nerdiness that, that I don't have. <laughs> well, I'm all about building structures and stuff anyway, and structures and scenery is my thing. So I'm not sure. Sure. I, I don't spend that much time on, on track and, how far apart the wheels are and things like that. It's uh, if it looks good from a couple of feet away, I'm happy. But yeah. I'm I'm easily I'm easily pleased. <laughs> so you, right, yeah, now speaking of the Rio Grande Southern, going back to that, you are in Ridgeway, Colorado, right now, which was the I'm heart and me. soul of the Rio Grande Southern once upon a time. Absolutely, uh, it, this <clears> is narrow gauge country. I love that town. I love Ridgeway. Uh, I thought about moving there a couple of times, many, many you years ago. You could have ago. made yourself a John Wayne impersonator, Dave, and, and gone well, around. Well, let me tell you. With an eye patch and, and uh, maybe signed autographs for kids in the summer. Well, I'm fat enough to play Rooster Cogburn now, so. <laughs> you didn't have to say that. <laughs> I look more like the Jeff Bridges version, though, with the beard. Than, the Jeff Bridges. I look more like the, good... Je or the Jeff Bridges version than the John Wayne version. Yeah. Fill your hands, you son of a bitch. Hmm? I saw the farmhouse where uh, right. he jumps over the fence. Uh -huh. uh, it's on Last Dollar Road. Yes, Last Dollar Road. I have driven that whole road from Telluride. It's a fantastic Jeep road. It yes. is. Yes, beautiful, beautiful. Country. Oh, my gosh. I drove a Jeep over Imogene Pass. I've done that, too. It's amazing. It is. It's, it's spectacular. 
Have you taken a Jeep up the remnant? There's a remnant uh, at Lizardhead Pass of the old RGS by, by Trout Lake. I haven't, haven't done that. I've been out to Trout uh, Lake. I've done know. a Rio Grande Southern thing thing that you have not done. I am I'm very proud of myself right now. <laughs> you should be. You just, you just there's an old there's some face. old trestles out there. You know you can drive. Yeah, I, I've seen the yeah. I've, got I've photos. seen the water tank and the trestle, but yeah. I haven't done any of the really treacherous off-road Rio Grande Southern stuff. Yeah. I've taken the Jeep road up to uh, Corkscrew Gulch, too, which is... Uh, Ooh, that's impressive. Yeah, there's... Uh, and the old turntable is still there. Well, this is 10 years ago, so... The decayed remains of the turntable? The decayed turntable? remains of the turntable uh, are still there. Um, now, I, I encourage anyone who goes up there to take only pictures and leave only footprints, <clears throat> but I did grab a couple of cinders from from the old roadbed, and I, I have them on the shelf in the studio. Uh, oh, and take water. And take water. <laughs> that's right. Take take pictures and take water. Yeah. So that's, you know, that goes back to what we're talking about. So much great uh, Colorado uh, railroad history there still exists that you can go visit. And not and just out, outside of the, 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 uh, the museum railroads, too. You can go and uh, just by the side of the road out there. There's all kinds of amazing stuff. Well, the, the thing that's fascinating about Colorado is the mining history, because right. that's why the railroads existed. Right. But what you have to understand is all the inventions that came out of trying to extract all this ore mm -hmm. in, in, in faster and faster with every new invention. Right. And a lot of the, 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 some of the first electricity was here in Colorado. Yeah. Yeah. People don't realize that and they don't understand why. And, it, you know, for you the come here and you go. Well, this isn't New York City, or this is, you know, <laughs> right. this is this is in the middle of nowhere, yeah. and they're the ones that get the first electricity. Nikola Tesla set up shop in uh, Colorado Springs to bring electricity to the mountains. There, that was one of the things he did. Tesla fans out there. Uh, so you're you're in Ridgeway <clears throat> for a specific purpose. You're 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 building a custom uh, model railroad. Uh, yes. For someone. Yes, I started about a year and a half ago. Uh, a good friend of mine, a, a mutual friend of ours, Ray Spencer. Yes. Contacted me and said yeah. that he had a friend uh -huh. who wanted to build an, uh, a narrow gauge layout. Yeah. And so I started designing it. Mm -hmm. And I have a 30 foot by 60 foot space to work with. Yeah. And so... I started drawing a track plan and then I drew another track plan and then, you know, over and over, let's, uh, let's refine keep working it on this down. until yeah. it's right. Yeah. Yeah. And now you've been oh. building it all summer long and how far yes. along are you on this thing? Is it, where, where have, is it at? I have 50% of the bench work finished. Mm -hmm. And the next step will be to come in and lay track on 50% of the layout so that we can build the additional 50% of the bench work because we've got two levels. Uh -huh. We've got a staging level and we've got a, a, a yard that goes above the staging level. Yeah. And because of that, we've got to put the track in the staging level first. And so that's why we're building this in two, two right. Uh, different right. phases. We've got the, the lower section of the bench work. We've got another section of peninsula where there isn't anything underneath. Mm -hmm. And so all that's finished. In terms of bench work, and then we're going to get to the uh, get to the track, and then the next phase will be uh, 
rendition of the Chama Yard that goes on top of the staging yard. Mm-hmm. Another peninsula with a helix inside so that the staging yard can come out at the uh, standard track elevation for the railroad. Mm-hmm. So this is all uh, ON3? All ON3, yes. Mm-hmm. Wow. So what's your opinion on helixes? Um, yeah. <laughs> I've always been kind of scared of them, but yeah. Um, the thing that's Having that much scary track about scares me. is the yeah. access. Yeah. Uh, you need to determine whether or not your equipment can handle the grade. Yeah. You're making a spiral. Mm-hmm. Okay, when you make one revolution of that spiral, the offset from the top to the bottom right. needs to match the equipment that you're using. You have to have enough clearance. It's just like it was going under a bridge somewhere. You'd have to have enough clearance exactly. in that circle. Right. So something's going to happen. The smaller the radius, the steeper the grade. The right. larger the radius, the more general. obviously less grade. Mm-hmm. Well, we're dealing with the grade uh, grade average here of about two and a half percent that's that's good that's manageable but you've got to have a 40 plus radius helix mm-hmm. you know okay yeah. radius now let's talk diameter now we're <clears> talking <throat> 80 plus inches across this circle. circle yeah so how it's do you hide that <laughs> yeah it's gonna be hidden somewhere right mm-hmm. i'd like to build the helix like a volcano so that you can stand up inside the helix mm-hmm. so you're not hitting your head if you have to go inside and model it in such a way that the hills all come down to the inside of the helix. Mm. Not like you'd know it's a volcano, but if you had a, if you had the point of view uh, you know, of, of a Looking study down. model, right. you'd be like, oh, that looks like a volcano. Well, right. yeah, that's, right. that's hiding the helix. And there's no reason to build all that scenery in the middle of that helix. No. And you want to leave it, you you want to leave it open anyway, so you can get in there. And see, that's what scares me about those things, because in my experience, if something's going to go wrong, it's going to go wrong in the hardest to reach place uh, that you can possibly find on any layout. The hard, wherever that place is that you thought, oh, it won't be a problem. I'll be able to get to it down the road. That's where the problem is going to be. My initial design did not have a staging yard or a helix. Yeah. For for those reasons. Right. But I try uh, to avoid those things. Yeah. Y- yeah. You know, you want to run more trains and park more trains. You're gonna have more track. That's right. That's right. So so doing this, I mean, building custom. And this is not your first rodeo. You you you've done custom. Uh, uh, model work custom layouts for people in the past you've done different jobs on these custom uh, model builds and you know it's this is for people that um have the desire to own a great model railroad but don't necessarily and they have the means but they don't necessarily have the time or the skills to build it themselves <clears throat> so it's great that people like jake are out there to uh, offer his time and his skills at a reasonable rate uh <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> uh, to do these things. Now, building this thing caused you to to come up with a, a, a layout construction sequence, an order yes. of march, if you will, a way, a, a kind of a recipe for the, the best practices for how to do things to build an entire layout. 
And I think this is some really important information because, you know, <clears throat> the way I do things on my channel and the way uh, things are often presented in the railroad press, it's, it's piecemeal. There's a lot of eye candy. Here's some pretty models. Here's some beautiful finished scenes. Now, for someone just coming in and starting out in the hobby, it might be a little overwhelming. They don't know where to begin or what order to do things in. And the thing is, it's like baking a cake. You have to do it in a certain order or it's not going to work. Uh, or you're going to have, you know, you're going to have problems later on. And most of us learn the hard way uh, about about this. Uh, but anyway, I'll, I'll quit blabbing. I'll let you launch in. You, you, you've, got a, you've got a list of things. And the first thing is, I think I'm looking at this and I'm like, I've never done this. <laughs> a clay model of the track and scenery. That's a great bit of advice. Yes. So in, a, in the professional sense of the word, when uh, we look at some of these models, there's a desire in it. Every railroad has Gibbons and Druthers or a spec sheet. Right. I want this. I want that. I want mountains. I want bridges. I want a yard. Mm -hmm. Okay. I, I, as a builder, want a reference. If I try and make the scenery terrain shapes in my head, I, I, I'm going to fail. I, I, no, I, I'm not <laughs> going to say I'm going to fail, but I'm, I'm going to miss nuances mm -hmm. that I can achieve. I, I can build a study model mm -hmm. in about eight hours, maybe 10 hours. And I'm talking about some complicated study model yeah. with, with clay and this. And, right. and I don't, I don't want to say, oh, gee, I don't have eight hours to do that. You'd be surprised that that study model is going to save you hours and hours. Right, right. Of of what am I going to do next? What is this supposed to look like? Yeah. And it's it's shorthand. It's mm -hmm. it it creates a three dimensional outline, if you will, literally and figuratively of of what you're going to do. Right. And before we we get too far into this clay model, track planning is really really important. Right. And uh, the way I've been designing some of the track plans lately, uh, you and I both use Adobe Illustrator, and right. we know how to draw things, and you like to sketch things by hand, too. Um, I like to draw it in Adobe Illustrator first because I'm familiar with that. Right. The geometry of track and turnouts for some of these bigger layouts that are more complex really require a knowledge of the uh, track geometry, mm -hmm. curves, yeah. switches, what size switches, is there a transition from straight to curve? Right. Uh, what's your minimum radius? And you'd be surprised if you try and kind of do this on the fly, all of a sudden you're like, hey, this doesn't fit. <laughs> Actually, I you wouldn't, know? I wouldn't be surprised, but yes. <clears throat> yeah, and so things yeah. don't fit. And so it's really important to get as much of that worked out. And, and what you're gonna find is that you're going to have answers if you if you finish it. Mm -hmm. You're going to have answers. Uh, you're going to have a lot of questions answered. But it's going to force you to answer those questions, and you won't be stuck staring at the layout. However, I think what everybody wants to hear is, well, what if I want to make changes? Well, go ahead and make them, but realize that you're on your own <laughs> in terms of what's going to happen. Well, it's and like, I'm not saying don't make changes. I, I'm just saying right. that um, a 
lot of this pre-planning solves a lot of problems. Mm -hmm. And if you change things, which you will, um, maybe they're for the better. Right. But, you know, change, don't change, whatever. Having a lot of it figured out ahead of time makes a big difference. Yeah. Someone should make a, uh, a plug-in pack for Adobe Illustrator, <clears throat> hint, hint, that has uh, all, the tra all the turnouts and track radiuses and everything already as, as a plug-in. You just click them and, and drop them in. I should just learn how to use Third Planet instead. Or you of could just do that, <laughs> which has all of that stuff, has all the popular plant uh, uh, track uh, manufacturers in there already. So anyway, you finish the clay model, you figure out the mountains, your benchmark <clears throat> begins. Yeah. It's nice to know where your bridges are going to go. Right. Okay. Um, where your bridges are going to go, where your tunnels are going to go. And figure out also, I think a lot of times people don't realize I can build a really difficult bridge. I can build a prototypical looking bridge mm -hmm. or I can just buy a kit. Right. They're all great ideas. But if you put your bridges on, uh, on a straight section of track, you can buy a kit. Right. If you build a bridge on a curve, you're going to be scratch building it. Pretty much, yeah. And you might have to hand spike some rail and things like that. So mm -hmm. if, if you want to make it easy on yourself, figure out where the bridges are going to go and put them on straight track and build a kit. Even if it's a Walther's plastic <clears throat> kit, don't you know you don't have to uh, build these amazing wooden bridges uh, if, if you really still want to get started on a layout. Right, right. Well, you know, and that's that kind of follows prototype practice too, which was the path of least resistance. If if you're going to put a bridge or a culvert or something somewhere, it's easier to do it on a piece of, on a section of relatively straight track than it is to build big dramatic big dramatic wooden trestles and and viaducts like Devil's Gate, which I just did a, a, a video on, were built completely out of necessity. They did it because there was no other way. <laughs> to get what they wanted to get done. So, yeah. Well, and you, you know, if you're going to build something like that you, and, and you want to remain, uh, you know, to have a real, a realistic appearance, you're going to have to build a lot of special trust work. You might mm -hmm. have to build your own peers. Right. And, and how much of that do you want to do? Well, yeah, I, I, I really enjoy building bridges, you know, scratch building bridges and, Me too. I, and creating the jigs and everything and figuring it all out. I love doing that, but you know, that's a, that's a, a really fun part of the, especially wooden bridges, the hobby for me, but not every, you know, other people's mileage may vary. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's important to figure out where the bridges are going to go because you're going to need to adjust the bench work accordingly. Um, you know, and that's the other goes back to building the little the planning model, uh, because a, a a two dimensional plan looking at it from above is not going to tell you how deep that canyon is going to be, you know, or that uh, whatever that crossover is going to be. But a a planning model will help you visualize that ahead of time. I'm a big fan of bridges that are longer than they are deep, as opposed to the whole sort of roadrunner canyon of a really <laughs> deep gorge and a really short bridge. Oh, uh, I'm guilty of that. So, <laughs> but you but know, see, Dave, you're telling a different story. So I am. you get a hall pass. The roadrunner lives on my layout, so it's okay. <laughs> so the bench work begins. Any any uh, any uh, uh, tips for building bench work? I mean, I think most bench work is actually overbuilt. 
you're a carpenter, so what do you what do you think on that? Well, I like to build because I'm a you know a scenery guy too. I like to be build benchwork I can step on that you can and, stand on. And stand on that comes from the movie industry too and, and and because a lot of times the only way to get to something is to walk across the dang model so yeah you got to yeah. be able to, to stand on it yeah yeah and i don't want my foot going through something right. and and right. ruining it or mm -hmm. ruining me right in the process so the the old school lynn westcott uh risers and cleats l girder yeah which is the way i do things yeah I, I, I want to take those foam. I, I want to figure out how to do all, all this foam building that I see you guys talk about. Yeah. But ultimately, I want to build something that holds a spike. If I have to make a track repair, <laughs> right. okay, not because I want to hand lay anything, but if I have to make a track repair, mm -hmm. oh, if I could just put a spike right here, that'd be great. Well, some of these road beds and foams and this and that and the other thing, they won't hold they're it. not going to take the pressure that it takes to put a spike in, unless you're going to drill a hole and maybe glue it. But right. I, I guess I'm kind of old fashioned in that. I want, uh, I want that spike to have a really tight friction fit and move the rail where I tell it to. Someone needs to make a custom, uh, foam board for model railroaders, which is like gator board, which is foam on the inside, uh, like a foam core. So it's, it's really super lightweight, but with a, a very thin, uh, veneer wood veneer like a plywood veneer on the top so it would well, ho hold spikes i see a lot of guys take lou on and they mm -hmm. glue lou on road bed Two. underneath right their ties on top of their foam and mm -hmm. so to me if you're willing to go that route and and, and you want a smaller yeah less complicated foam layout i i think that's probably a good way to go yeah. i haven't tried it you know but uh, I, I think that wood layer that you're talking about is, mm -hmm. is accomplished with the Luon, and I think it's a good way to make a foam layout yeah. more, uh, more robust. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, or just or, plan on there not being any problems. Oh, yeah. <laughs> every, every layout track uh, goes in once right the first time. <clears throat> what's, what's the ideal layout, uh, layout height, benchwork height for you? You know, I've seen layouts where they were too short and you're staring at all the roofs. Mm -hmm. And I've seen layouts so tall. And it also has something to do with double deck where that second deck is at eye height. Right. So, gosh, I don't have a number for you. Yeah. I think it's all personal preference. It's based on people's height. Yeah. What they want to see. Crawling underneath it makes a big difference. This right. layout is pretty high off the ground and I've been able to crawl underneath it mm -hmm. and work on it. And one thing I, one thing I find interesting in terms of layout height, we have some mechanics stools here. Yeah. I can get under this layout with a mechanic stool Ooh. and work underneath it. Sitting down. Yeah. It, yes. Yeah, it's really okay. helpful for the wiring. <clears throat> it makes, it makes for a taller layout mm -hmm. and it could be taller to clear my head. But I'm not complaining because this is the most room underneath a layout I think I've ever experienced. Mm. Yeah. And you're a so, tall guy. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to hit stuff. Yeah. <laughs> you have dents in your forehead just like I do. <laughs> model railroading dents. There's some model railroading dents. There's a, there's a yes. few of them right here. Yeah, we that's, need that's to why have I wear a class. Hmm? We need to have a class, Dave. Yoga and stretching for model railroaders. <laughs> 
I was uh, working on this thing, getting this this graveyard done for my gruesome gulch layout, and <clears throat> it was down. It's it's on. I was working on it on on a table lower than I would have liked, but it was the table I had, and it fit in the place where I needed to put it to get the camera and everything to shoot the video. So. I was basically doing squats the whole time while I was putting this thing together. Man, I was sore the next day. <laughs> but for me, I, I, I do have a number on an ideal height. For people who like an ideal, just, just write this down. You don't have to think about it. 52 inches. 52 inches. That's my track height level on Thunder Mesa, which I found is a really nice. But that's for O scale. Different scales might have different heights. So... Where are you going? Are you going to? Oh, he's got his tape measure out. Where, where are you at? Fifty-one and a quarter, Dave. <laughs> Fifty-one and a quarter. So there you go. By the time we get cork, ties, and rail up there, it's the 52. rail height will be almost fifty-two inches. Yeah. See, great minds <laughs> or simple minds. And, and, and you know, I, having been to your layout and and realizing the height of it, it's. It's like, like I said earlier about this stuff, it's easy on the eyes. Mm -hmm. 52 inches is easy on the eyes. Right. In um, O scale, it's like standing on the roof of a building. For me, as a, as a yeah, six yeah. foot tall human, it's like standing on the roof of a building and looking, uh, you know, just there, there it is right there. Yeah. As opposed to skydiving or being in a helicopter. Or an airplane. Yeah. Right. Or, right. Or being in a hole looking up i mean for kids that come to the layout and you know and since mine's open to the public once a month it's 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 a good height for grabby hands too that little kids can't uh, reach that's what steps are for if short people uh need to enjoy uh, i have steps way. i have several sure i have do. i have several apple boxes that people can stand up Perfect. on and those are for well-behaved children they can stand up there and, and look you mean they're not dynamite crates dave i'm been meaning to paint them <laughs> It's the light them and hide uh, dynamite crates. <laughs> light them and hide. Uh, it's, they're uh, they're steps. not the, they're not quite the right size, but with a good paint job, I could fool people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think I think that's I think that's going to be a video someday that you haven't started yet. I think so too. The light them and hide uh, riser steps. Right. So uh, the uh, yeah, for those who don't know, Apple boxes are, are something that's used in the motion picture and television industry f for everything. That for for they're always behind the scenes and you're always putting stuff on them and they're, you know, they also make handy stools and steps too. So they're, they're like full size. They're like human sized Legos on a movie set. Exactly. There. That's a great way to put it. They're like human sized Legos. Okay. We're not getting very far on this. Okay. So, uh, track laying, track laying is nice. Yes. Yeah. yeah. You got to lay your track. Uh, you know, once your bench work is done, and, and, you know, this is the kind of thing we, we've talked about bridges. Bridges can start early on. Bridges mm -hmm. can be part of the track laying and bridges can be after the track laying. Right. So um, this is one of those things that's, that's a continuum of, of start and finish through a long process and, and track laying. You're going to you need to start putting your track in once your bench work's done. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. I'm kind of jumping around here. Um, Anyway, uh, yeah, you want to put your track in, get it wired, get mm -hmm. your trains to run, and get your trains to run well and make sure there's no derailments. Make any adjustments you need to make before any really, uh, you know, labor-intensive scenery goes on. Right, right. And that's always a fun day, too, and you finally get the trains running. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and there's, there's multiple... Re there's multiple 
points to get your trains running. Part of it is uh, your coupler height, your wheel gauge, uh, whether or not you know your locomotive is 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 right. Uh, so there's a in and that could be several different things we don't need to go into, but um, motors, gearing, right. etc. But uh, DCC. But um, yeah, you got to make sure your cars uh, have all the standards set so the trains don't come apart trains don't derail right trains are weighted properly there's there's a whole nother right that's a whole nother uh, can of now i'm interested yeah. interesting that, that that you haven't put uh, backdrop painting <clears throat> oh gee before you know, did, did you I, is that an oversight or <laughs> no it's in the, it's in the list there mm -hmm. it, it's um it's in the list and and i'll tell you I, i'll Let's see. You want the backdrop painting done before the the, the the scenery gets gets built. Right. And you know, Dave, you're fortunate. You're a painter. Yeah. You're your own background painter. You yeah. don't have to hire one. Right. There's things that a background painter needs to be aware of, and and we've skipped a couple steps that I yeah. want to go back to, but right. um, color locale right um mm. I, I i we just went out last week and collected dirt samples mm -hmm. gray dirt uh yellow tailings red tailings uh black uh cinders yeah okay if those colors are also going to be represented in the backdrop it's a good idea to collect some of these dirt samples before this backdrop gets painted right right so you can so match, that your dirt match the colors, yeah. In your foreground matches right. your dirt and soil in yeah. the paintings. See now, rather, I, rather I, than I'm going to disagree with you on the order of of this because <laughs> you're uh, welcome to. Thank you, <laughs> because I would I would actually prefer to install and paint the backdrop before the benchwork is built. Oh wow! <clears throat> okay, but you know, that's I'm kind of a special case. Uh, because I, I I can visualize down the line how how it's all going to fit together, and a lot of people would not necessarily uh, do it that way. Uh, uh, they would have to know where certain track components and things are going to be and be able to see it physically. Well, you know, but if I've got my clay my, my planning model, I don't make a clay planning model. I usually make a foam core planning model, but it's the same idea. And sure. uh, um, you know that's going to tell me where things are going to go. That said, I have gone back and had to repaint sections of the backdrop to match the scenery that it, when I've changed my mind. But anyway, how much did, how much did you charge yourself for the, for, for, for going back in and redoing it? What did that cost you? It's a, it's a, it's all in my, it's all in my taxes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's, that's one of those things. I've got it down a few a few pieces later, mm -hmm. uh, or a few a few things later after your track work's done. Yeah. But it needs to be done before your mountains are put in. Right. Right. I just like I to do it before the bench work is done because it's so much easier to reach. Oh. Oh yeah. Yeah. Don't, don't get me wrong. It needs <clears> to be easy. Uh, and and uh, yeah. and these these all these steps are are negotiable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so we've got the track laid. Uh, turnout motors. If you're going to put those in, you yeah, like the tortoise. You like the tortoise switch machines. 
You know what? I don't like switch machines. Neither do I. I use I use Grand Throws, but put them in. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I think choke cables are great because they mm -hmm. require no electricity, but um, right. We'll talk about that later. My experience with turnout wiring and turnout installation beyond the actual uh, piece of track itself is is pretty minimal. So yeah. So I like to let other friends do that. That right. are in the club or that I can hire. People who enjoyed that's what I say too, man. It's like it's like DCC decoder installs. It's like if I can buy it with it already installed or pay someone to do it, mm. I would much rather do that yeah. <laughs> than, than mess with it myself. Because nine times out of ten, I'm going to smoke the thing. Um, so yeah, so that brings us to electrical and DCC installation. Now, yeah, would, wouldn't you talk run? About that. Wouldn't you? <laughs> Yeah, well, let me just, just okay. You know, I know you don't want to talk about, it, but but wouldn't you just wouldn't you run the DCC bus? I'm not busting your balls on this, but I, wouldn't you run the DCC bus before laying the track? I, I think it's one of those things that kind of gets done as it's like there's like seven tasks, and one of them is right. is, is installing the bus, and you can do it before, during, and after depending on on yeah. your approach. Well, Jake doesn't want to talk about this, so I will give you DCC bus uh, best practices in a nutshell. Please. Uh, you you run uh, two uh, relatively heavy gauge wires underneath your layout. It's the the the, the exact is not that important. Um, kind of like doorbell wiring would be fine. Uh, run it underneath the, the the tracks for one for each track, and every three feet, you drop feeders down. Uh, to that DCC bus, and those feeders are soldered to each of the rails or otherwise connected in a firm and unmovable fashion. And uh, that will ensure a good track operation across your DCC power layout. DC, DC good old-fashioned DC, is a whole nother uh, uh, discussion because it involves block wiring and all that kind of stuff. But, all right. Paint and airbrush the track work with enamels and use acrylic washes as needed. That's your next yes. thing. Yeah. Okay. Yes, very important. Uh, after, everything in the track is just perfect because mm -hmm. you don't want to have to solder something after the track's been painted. You, you should have all your right. soldering done. Your, your train should run right. perfectly. Right. And then and you, you screw everything sure that... up by painting the track. Well, see... <laughs> There needs to be some guidelines as to how how uh, how uh, OCD you are when you paint the track, so that right. you don't foul flanges and right. points. I just and I put uh, I put painters tape over it. I cut little teeny pieces of painters tape and put them over the the points of my turnouts mm -hmm. and uh, and then the rest. And and it's, it's interesting you you mentioned enamels and acrylic washes, and the reason for that is you're asking me, or I can tell them. Well, you, you, give me your give me your version, Dave. And, well, and you, you, you do a, you do a base coat with enamel, and, 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 you know, like a dark, a super dark brown or black. I would I know you would prefer super dark brown, and then you would go back and use acrylic washes. I actually prefer dry brushing with acrylics over the top. And the reason is you use acrylic on top of enamel is because those paints will not react with each other. They one will cover the other. It will go over the other without reacting or moving or thinning the paint underneath. Yes, That's... I was I was going to add one more thing to that. What's my that? my mm. reasoning is that uh, enamel paint or lacquer paint, rattle can paint is yeah. going to stick to the metal and the plastic right. better than the acrylic. Right. It's so it acts like a primer 
for for the yes. for the layers that follow. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so we did that. We we got the we got the track painted. We've got the bench work done. We may or may not have the backdrop done. And now it's time to uh, start thinking about scenery, to start start uh, determining the position of uh, waterways, lakes, and streams, and things like that. Well, you need to know where those things are going to go because yeah. uh, waterways and streams, let's see, bridges. Right. So, you know, this, this might be a little bit out of order, but you kind of want to see where that is, and, and you want to figure out how your terrain is mm-hmm. going to complement, oh, I got a bridge here. That means I need a canyon. Yeah. Okay, or I, I need a riverbank. Mm-hmm. So you got to start thinking about those. Um, yeah, I, I you will start thinking about those things. I will to make, say to make the, the the terrain make sense. Exactly, and to make it make it make sense. That's that's a really important point because water, the movement of water on our planet, determines where everything else is. That's that's how geology works. So um, even in the desert, like I model, you know, it's it's where the water is determines what everything else around it should be and look like. So that's a really important thing to keep in mind if you want to model scenery realistically. You're still going to get flash floods in the desert, so you are yeah. going to have uh, variation Arroyos, in terrain. right, and dry washes and things like that. Places where the water runs even when it's not running. Yeah, yeah. So, yes, think about that. Think about where I, I'm always saying this, and I'm not sure people understand me when I'm doing scenery videos. Think of where the water runs. <laughs> you know, think of where the water runs down. Where would gravity take it? You know, through this through this scene. And uh, and, it, and you also have to remember that railroads, a lot of time, with it, to follow a level grade, usually followed a water path beside a river. And and the other smart thing about that is because they didn't uh, you know have a lot of issues with ups and downs a- along the edge of a river in in most cases it was also a source of water for steam engines as long as you can make sure the train is out of the way of any sort of spring uh, runoff and, and and flooding and it's important to remember that uh, large dramatic water call waterfalls even though I love them are actually quite rare in nature they don't. <laughs> They don't happen very often, and they're seldom next to actual railroad grades. But I digress. But every model railroad needs a good waterfall. It needs a couple of really big, dramatic waterfalls, you know. (laughs) All right. Uh, Let's see. Uh, Collect some dirt samples. You talked about that for proper color matching. Um, Determine your green scenic colors. This is a really important point. I've talked to our mutual friend, Ren. The friend Ray about this is that green is hard. As 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 any artist will tell you who who tries to paint landscapes or or do three D modeling of realistic scenery, green is the hardest thing to get right. It's it's everywhere in nature. It's like a human face. We know what it's supposed to look like. That's why it's so hard to do good CG with human faces because we know what they're supposed to look like. In art, it's really difficult. <laughs> to get green right because we see it all around us in nature and we know what it's supposed to look like. And I'll tell you, most of the time, the greens you see uh, in, in ground foams and, and products from, from different manufacturers is not quite right. Limited. It's, it's limited. Yeah, it's limited. That's a good way to put it. And it's a little blue in a lot of cases for my, for my taste. Whereas uh, 
greens in nature actually have a lot of red in them. They have a lot of red and browns, and they're much more muted and desaturated than what you can get off the shelf at your local Hobby Lobby. We should have a we should have a little uh, aside, uh, Fifty Shades of Green. <laughs> so you say we should get some ground foam samples and to create a color. Yeah, the ground. Yeah, so green ground foam samples and dirt to to get a color guide for backdrop painting. Yeah, you want right. to coordinate your your foreground scenery with your background colors. Absolutely, and, you and want of course, it to match. you're gonna you're gonna um, as an artist, you know, you're gonna want to have some atmospheric haze and some distance, and that's gonna change your colors. Mm -hmm. But the but this the pieces that you model up close on mm -hmm. your backdrop, yeah, are, are gonna guide you. Should should match the scenery, and you know, there's a really easy way to add that background haze is just to add you you know you you get a you get some sky color mixed up. And you add a little bit more of that to your backdrop colors for the further away something is, and it's a it's a very easy way to figure out uh, uh, atmospheric haze. So place a sample order for trees, you say? Ah, uh, that's that's a commercial thing more than anything else. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, on a on a uh, on a commercial or a on a paying layout job. On a job, what like you're doing now? Yeah. Yeah, you want to get those trees in the pipeline and yeah. trying to find a custom tree maker for O-scale narrow gauge that makes aspen trees and really nice pine trees in O-scale yeah. in quantity. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know where these guys are. <laughs> O-scale trees are big, by the way. They're if, very if, big. They're very If they're at scale, which most are not, that you see. Well, and, and you need scale trees and you need porous perspective trees right. further away to create that illusion of distance. So, right. so right. that's uh, something that needs to be done on just about any layout as far as I'm concerned, but you want to create that illusion of distance. Okay. Uh, so you don't have to make as many big trees. I think it, it makes the layout look larger right. when you've added that forced perspective. So you have the foreground trees, trees, the really highly detailed ones, and then, the, then they get less detailed and smaller as they go back towards the backdrop. Right. 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 Speaking of backdrop, this is where you have backdrop painting in here now. Um, work with the background painter, which I notice is not you, uh, to yeah. guide while you <laughs> while painting the backdrop. You very kindly asked me to, to if I wanted to come and, and work on the backdrop on this, didn't you? And I, and I was like, yeah, I don't have the time. But thank you. You don't have the time. <laughs> uh, use a study model for planning the background artwork. Good, good. I'll I made a study. I, I made a study model, Dave, with the walls of the building mm -hmm. as part of the study model, ah. and they're painted blue. So you knew the, so the, the, the height. So you take a piece of paper mm -hmm. and drop it into the study model and sketch on it. Yeah. And kind of figure out, hey, this is this needs to go there. This needs to go there. Mm -hmm. And you could work a lot of that stuff out right. on paper, right. on the study model or whatever, mm -hmm. um, and and figure out some shapes. Yeah. I'll just add one thing, and I've said this before, and I'll say it again. I'll keep saying it as long as I keep saying, seeing the same mistake uh, in backdrop painting. Choose one light source. There's only one sun in the sky. So pick what direction you want the sun to be shining down on your backdrop scenery from and paint everything with the light side on the same side and the dark side on the opposite sides. So the darker is the shadows. So it's all... It all looks like there's you're not on Tatooine. There's not multiple suns, because uh, I see this mistake made a lot of times in background painting where there's there's not there's there's more than one uh, a light source, and it just it doesn't look realistic. So, Dave, would you also uh, say that it's important to select a time of day? Yes, 
morning, mm-hmm. midday, or or, right. or late afternoon. Right. I'll give you an example. On my layout, on Thunder Mesa, it is mid-morning. The 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 sun is uh, you know rising. It's 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 about ten thirty a.m. So, <laughs> so that's going to give you cooler colors as opposed to warmer afternoon colors. Am I right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Depending on the part of the country you're in, yeah, pretty, yeah, pretty much, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you talked about all these different light sources, and it reminds me of every time I would watch an old uh, TV show, a Western, mm-hmm. and they have a soundstage right. where they're shooting exteriors uh, of a city. Bonanza. You know, of yeah. an old Western town. <laughs> yeah. And the shadows are going in every different in direction, every direction because they've got key lights Everywhere. in every possible corner. Because <laughs> you want to be able to see stages. the actors, right? <laughs> that's, why the, that's why the Ponderosa always looked fake. Yeah. It was the yeah. bad lighting. <clears throat> Nothing against the a lot of it. <laughs> the hardworking uh, people that uh, did the lighting for those shows, but they were union and they were just trying to get the job done. Uh, <laughs> it looked great because it was in color. It was in color. That's right, in living color. All right, backdrop painting. Okay, now it's time to to build bridges, uh, bridge piers, foundations, abutments, and retaining walls. Yes, this is this is. I agree with you on this. This is when all that stuff goes in. Uh, uh, um, uh, and paint these with a base uh, primer color. You wouldn't finish these at this point. You would just paint no, them with a primer. You can come back later and do them, but you've got to at least get a color on them to get them started, so that you're not you don't have something that's white mm-hmm. that you're trying to uh, yeah to do. Especially if it's and and when I say uh, primer, I'm talking about masonry type things. Yeah. Concrete, stone. So you want like a gray, a gray primer on there to just have it ready to go, because you're going to come back and then paint that. You see, I, I do this, I do this differently. You're going to you come. You can do it either way. It, it's okay. just you know, it depends on on what the materials are and what mm-hmm. the color scheme is. You've got a lot of stone work that I would imagine is a lot easier to paint on the workbench yeah. than it is to paint on the layout. So yeah. I'll give you that. Yeah, that's that's what I do. And then then and then I go back and I I try to get the and then I match the scenery to the uh, the stone the stonework rather than the other way around. Um, now you're you're doing the the scenery forms with on this layout. Is this true? This the Thermax foam sheets. Is that how you're doing this? I'm not sure what the client wants because he, he's kind of uh, old school Slim Gauge Guild, uh, mm-hmm. epic plaster uh, and buckets of it. Ah. Uh, I, I'm just kind of going on if I was professionally doing this based on the uh, on the projects I've done. I, I've worked with Joel Bragdon on a couple of different projects, and mm-hmm. I'm probably going to work with him on another one. Yeah. Here. Uh, I like to use his product. I feel like it's a it's a product that I'm familiar with. Uh, for the experiences I've had with plaster, mm-hmm. it's been messy. Yeah. Um, I Fragile. prefer to use. Yeah. Yeah, I prefer to Heavy. use his project uh, product, and and so this list, mm-hmm. you know, is coming from a professional lab builder who right. prefers to use a specific <laughs> well, material. That's why we've got you on here because we we want your professional experience for for people to hear that you know, and how what you're doing as a professional might differ. From what the average hobbyist is doing and the different materials that they you know you might turn them on to uh, bragdon has been around for a long time and uh i don't see it used as as much as it probably should be because i mean it's uh, uh it's it is a great product uh, the stonework the castings once i mean once they're all painted and everything are beautiful you know 
I think he's been ignored or uh, ob objected to by the model railroad press because of its unique nature. <laughs> people want to people want to use plaster like they've always used plaster. Plaster is the traditional material of model railroad uh, builders when it comes to scenic terrain, and yeah. this is anything but. Right. Right. And and I don't think they've really given him his uh, his day in in terms of hey, this is a great product, but Joel goes out and builds layouts with this stuff all the time, and he builds epic yeah, rock I've work. Yeah, I've seen them, and it's amazing. You know, anybody who knows his product and have seen the layouts, mm -hmm. it's like, oh, of course, you'd never get this finished in plaster. Right, and, and and if you did it in plaster, it would weigh 10 times as much, and it would be fragile, and, you know. It, well, and, the and other you, thing, too. And really hard to change it, if you wanted to. Yes, mm -hmm. we use it because... We can load up sections of a, of a custom-built layout into mm -hmm. a trailer, right? and it's light enough, mm -hmm. and it's flexible enough that it, it's not going to break in transit. Right, right. Uh, you know, maybe maybe there's some guys who have done some plaster rock work that, that have uh, moved it, and they're fine with it, but I have seen plaster self-destruct uh, uh, upon a little too much movement. And mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not flexible. So, it's not known for its flexibility. Yeah, it's great for a layout that's already built in your home. Right, in your basement. Uh, the plaster. Right, that you don't plan to ever move. Yeah. <clears throat> but there's less and less of that, move I into think. the dumpster. <laughs> that's where we all end up. <laughs> okay. Uh, hard shell scenery with AB foam and fiberglass window screen. Okay. Um, that's that's the same thing. Uh, now, now you want to start uh, culver culverts and tunnels, tunnel portals. Tunnel openings, uh, tunnel liners, which is a, 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 a very important and often overlooked detail. Uh, as far as you can see from a normal viewing point back inside that tunnel, there needs to be something in there. You know, there needs to be a liner of some kind, be it, uh, you know, raw stone or, or cribbing or something inside there. Or for, blasted rock. Or yeah. blasted rock, yeah, for people to see. Yeah. And um, go ahead. Well, some of this list mm -hmm. is born out of access. Right. If I put those tunnel liners in now, I've got access to them. Mm -hmm. Right. So, uh, you know, thinking about those kind of things. And the other reason I, I, I get some of these things started is we're going to get to the rock castings in a minute. I want the rock castings to fit into the bridges, into the tunnels. Right on the train, in the stream. I don't want this, I don't want to put the cart before the horse, which is so much of what this is about, right. regardless of whether or not you've figured out a different way to do it. Mm -hmm. It's trying to get things done in an order so that you're like, oh, I don't have to fix that. I can just make this fit right next to whatever component. Right. Yeah, you want to do it, you want, that's what this is all about, doing it in an order where the next thing follows logically after what you've already done. And not having to go back and fix something, you know, or change something that uh, you should have done later. That, and it's kind of like starting from the inside out. Right. Or from the middle out. Mm -hmm. And working your way to the outside. Uh, now you want to uh, get uh, ballast the tunnels, ballast inside the tunnels where it's visible, right? Yeah, because you're going to lose access pretty you're not quick. Have access. That's, that's, Same thing. Right. And so put some ballast and maybe some gravel inside the tunnel. Mm -hmm. And then you won't have to come back and do that later on. Mm -hmm. 
So once you've got that, you, you've painted your track, you've got the ballast and the, on the ties and the inside the tunnels. Uh, now you want to start on the, the rock casting. Yeah, and, and, and you're going to be fitting your rock castings to these uh, pieces of masonry that go with your bridge, to mm -hmm. the uh, tunnel pieces, to um, you know, the, 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 the edge of your layout right. from you know, front edge and back edge. And, you know, it's interesting uh, at Disney, they talked about, you know, how they've done so many uh, large rockwork facades to cover up these giant ride buildings. Right. And I'm starting to notice. And yeah, well, not recently, but in the last 10 years, they're trying to figure out how to use less rockwork to cover these giant show buildings. Uh -huh. Maybe they can throw in some grass. Maybe they can terrace it somehow to make it more organic and less less of a concrete landscape. Right. And so they've had to do different things to retain uh, vegetation right. on uh, the rock work that's been done. And so I think it's important to not only model rock work, but to model areas of vegetation and soil so the entire layout isn't a rockscape. Right. As someone with an entire layout that's a rockscape, I, I take that personally. What, Dave? Dave, Dave, you have plenty of plant life and plenty of places I, that are not carved rock. You've I'm, got your streams and... I know, I'm kidding you. I, you know, and as you were talking about Disney is like trying not to build rock work, and I immediately thought of the uh, the new Guardians ride at uh, Walt Disney World, which is in a big blue box. That was that was their solution, was to just paint it, well, just paint it sky blue and no one will see it. They, they didn't try and disguise it as a... Uh, well, it has the front the front facade, which is left over from old Epcot, and then they built a huge black. They held built a huge warehouse behind it and painted it blue. <laughs> I, I'm surprised they didn't try and put a, a a facade that looks like an imposing structure uh, in front of it. No. No, it's it's. Uh, it's a big blue building that's visible from just about every. It's Florida, you know. It's flat. It's visible well, from sure everywhere on the money. property. <laughs> But that's a whole nother topic. We're not we're not yeah. going to go there tonight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, we've started the rock castings, and now the final ins installation of your your tunnel portals, your tunnel openings, and snow sheds and things like that. Right? Yeah, because you may have taken some of these items and and fit everything, but you may not have made your hard attachment to the layout. Mm -hmm. So you might have these things loose as, as sub-assemblies that you're taking in and out. Right. Eventually, you're going to have to commit yourself and install them permanently. Yeah, yeah, right. I still have some that are just, I can lift them right off just in case I change my mind. <laughs> uh, so you want to fill in the rockwork areas with Sculptamold, one of my favorite products to use, or acrylic caulking as needed. Uh, white gesso on the rock surfaces. So you want, yeah, this is using Bragdon, so it's all got to be sealed right. with gesso before uh, before coloring, right? Um, yeah, yeah, they're sealed with gesso. Mm -hmm. And gesso and then, and is is a is a, uh, a art supply product for those in the model railroad hobby who do not know, which has been used uh, by uh, oil painters for centuries. And originally it was made with marble dust. It's a very white, white uh, colored product, which has a nice tooth to it when it's dry, so paint sticks to it. So this is put on canvas in in in, in yeah. In that's a gesso. Instances. Yeah, you would prime your canvas. You'd stretch your canvas and you prime it with uh, with white gesso to paint your oil painting on. Yeah, 
probably take some of that canvas texture out of your painting so that you get a smoother. Right. Well, if you want, well, we're going to talk about painting now. If you want a really smooth surface, you use linen, which is ah. often used for portraits. Because Finer thread count. Exactly. Yeah. And, there, you know, there's there's different like thread counts in, in cotton, too. You can get some stuff that's like burlap, or you can get some really, you know, some nicer stuff. Um, anyway, so now you want to paint paint the art, the hard shell surfaces with a, with a flat earth-colored latex paint. Yeah. Now, here's, yeah, here's, the, here's the rub. What work. color is earth? <laughs> it's so many different exactly. colors, Dave. Are we going to go down that rabbit hole, too? We talked about that. See, we talked about that the last time you were on. When we did, like, the art of modern railroading, we talked all about colors and, and, and design and stuff like that. Today, we're more in the science side of it, so... You know, we don't need to tread over all that again. I don't think about, um, uh, you know, what it's color. your favorite earth tone choice. What color earth is. I'll tell you what I did. And you talked about this earlier when matching colors is um, I picked up a rock in Sedona, Arizona, and I took it down to my local paint store and it was big enough. It was a flat rock that was about two inches wide. And I said, can you put this under your, your little spectrometer thing or whatever it's called and, and, and match the color? And they said, sure. And they did. They got really close, and that's been my scenic base color ever since. And I just yeah, mix other colors with it to, as needed. And what's what's good about that is if there's a place that you don't get enough dirt, right? And you see below that dirt layer, it needs to be a color that isn't white, right? Bright or, green or, or pink, or pink, <laughs> right? <laughs> A natural earth tone shade, depending or on wood. What, what right? What part of the earth you're modeling? Yeah, you, 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 up middle to, earth. Uh, up to middle earth. That was the subject of our live stream the other night. <laughs> Talked about modeling middle earth. What would we? What would we take to model middle earth? That's a whole other podcast. Um, okay, so we've got the, we've got it. Uh, uh, the flat earth tone. Now, now, oh, now you put the fascia in. Okay. Well, the fascia needs to come at a point where it's not too early and not too late, and you can right. kind of jump around here on where you want to put it in, but your your castings and scenery, this is what kind of frames the edge of the layout. And you might have flat, angular fascia, mm -hmm. or you might have curvy fascia, right. curvy edge, curvy right. profile, right. all these things, and, and or, or curvy path. Mm -hmm. and, and, and curvy profile. There's there's a lot of different ways to do it. I kind of like a curved path and a curved profile. Right. It's a lot of work, but you want to get that scenery, in my opinion, to always fit right up against your fascia right. and have a nice, clean, well, I don't want to say 90-degree edge, but but everything should, should just kind of fill in. It should look like nicely. a piece of earth that's been cut out and lifted up, and there it is. You exactly. Know, there shouldn't be a gap between the fascia and yeah. the scenery. I agree with you there. Yeah, absolutely. And it needs to be sturdy enough, uh, the fascia, because people are going to lean on it. Right. What's your favorite material for building fascia? Just masonite, hardboard? Uh, masonite, yeah. bending it, you yeah. know, and, and then attaching it to the to the framework, covering mm -hmm. up the screws. Yeah. I've seen guys take and put really nice laminates over the masonite after all the bugs have been worked out. Wow. And there's, you know, a million different laminates you could pick, but I've seen some really nice, like a cherry wood. Mm-hmm. Uh, laminate, but I think it's more like a countertop thing, yeah, or formica type thing that that's being uh, you know adhesive onto the uh, yeah onto the masonite. 
Dirt collecting. <laughs> now, now you're t now you're talking my language. I am an avid dirt collector. <laughs> dirt collecting to match the rock paint of the dirt and gravel being used. What's a good source <clears throat> other than going out in our public lands in the West or the, someone's backyard and digging up dirt. What's, there, there used to be some good suppliers of, there, there was the Arizona Rock and Mineral Company. Are they still around? Arizona Rock and Mineral has some great stuff if you're not willing to venture out yeah. in the wilds. Yeah, yeah. They're using real rock. They're not using uh, uh, walnut shells or kitty litter. <laughs> right, right. That company <laughs> shall remain nameless. Yeah. Uh, by the way, if you are willing to venture out into the wilds to collect dirt, <clears throat> pro tip, uh, dry stream beds. Ah, very, very great idea. Best place to look. Uh, you'll find uh, dirt already sorted into different sizes by the running of the water. And you can collect it and uh, use it at your discretion. You want the least amount of organic material in right. your... Uh... It'll also sort all that stuff out, the leaves and, and sticks yeah. and things like that. I'm always looking for that perfect place to pull over where no one will say, oh, hey, what are you doing picking up dirt? <laughs> if you are a real dirt sifting aficionado. Which I am. <laughs> there are sets of screens in different, uh, different grid pattern sizes mm -hmm. that are used for mining. Yeah. Go to gold gold panning. Gold, gold panning. Uh, go to gold panning uh, sites and uh, do a little search on Google's and you can find these screens. Yes, I know exactly. What you're uh, they're about. on Amazon and yeah. you can get uh, a multi pack. Mm -hmm. It's going to cost you a little money, but you're going to have so much fun sorting out all that dirt into all these different little sizes. Mm -hmm. All right. And and they fit right on top of a five gallon bucket, right. which is probably the best thing to collect dirt with. Right. So, so to adhere your dirt, you use diluted white glue like everybody else, right? A PVA. Yeah. yeah. Um, do you have a favorite dilution, dilution ratio? Everyone has different opinions on this. Uh, different uh, ratios for different uh, different things. Oh, really? So some, some, some need a stronger adhesive yeah. and, and a little more grab and other stuff not so much. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I change it depending on what I'm working with. Yeah. Sometimes that first initial ground cover layer is just straight glue it's brushed on and then you yeah. sprinkle your dirt into it yeah. i'm trying to figure out a way to do my ground cover there, there seems to be the minute the ground the, the rocks and gravel are completely soaked with glue and water they're a different color than if they're put on to the point where they're just sprinkled on and the bottom surface of the dirt has glue on it and the top surface is dry. Right. And there's a reason for that. It's that the dirt is dirty. And when you put wet water and glue on it, you're washing off the, the top layer of very, very fine dirt particles from the coarser dirt particles that you're gluing down. So it does change the shade. It usually makes it darker. It makes and it I, I kind of think even after it's dry, it's still, still darker. Yeah. What's that? Even after it's dry, it's still darker. Yeah. 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 So how do you so, fix that? Yeah. I, I, I fix it with, with chalk usually. That's that's a great thing to use. Yeah. That would totally make sense. Yeah. Just a little color chalk and lighten it up just a little bit here and there. Um, okay. So now, now, now we're to trees and structures and stuff? 
trees, structures, roadways, all that good stuff. Yeah. Now, now I would have been building the structures from the very beginning. And, and, and you're absolutely right, because some of those structures need to be worked into your plan. If you want a mm-hmm. giant stamp mill or you want a right. specific train station or an engine house, right. you need to know what the footprint of those things are, whether you start them or not. But you need to have a commitment mm-hmm. if you're going uh, yeah. well, to do these things. One thing I'll do a lot of times if I, if I have not built a structure and I don't even have a mock-up of it or anything... I will cut a piece of cardboard or foam core, which is the footprint of that building, and slap it on the layout, and that way I will know where the scenery comes up to, and that the, when it's done, the thing will fit there. And you can go back to your workbench and say, I want to make a you know a saloon. It's this this size piece of cardboard or, or right. a boarding house or exactly. whatever it is you want to make. And you can change your mind and things like yeah. that. Yeah. The other reason is is that structures take a long time, especially if you're scratch building. And uh, I like to get a head start on that because I really like building structures. Okay, so eventually you're going to start doing maybe like some urban landscape mm-hmm. structure lighting. Ah. You got to do that. For, you got to plan um, for all that. You got to and you got to run wiring for all that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, water effects. You've gotten all the dirt work done. You've got all the green work done. Mm-hmm. It's time to start putting in all the sort of resins and acrylics that you want to use for your water effects mm-hmm. so that you can control the amount of dust that falls into right. that. That's another thing. Really important to do it in the proper order. You do your, your, your groundwork, all the ground cover and dirt first, and then you go back and do the water to keep it as clean and pristine as possible. That's, that's like the last thing. That you do. And, and then I've got a note here <laughs> oh, followed uh, right after that. Final ballasting. Ah. Okay. What, what a lot of folks may or may not realize is that if you go out and you look at a railroad, it looks like somebody dumped the gravel right on top of the grass, right on top of the soil, mm-hmm. whatever else. Right. And so if you ballast your railroad right after you put your track in and then you try and meet that mm-hmm. ballast – you can't get that scenic material underneath the ballast. Right. The ballast so should be to on top. It. Yeah, you want the ballast to be on top, especially if you're doing something uh, th- that's recently ballasted, that's not dirt ballast, mm-hmm. or or that's modern. You want that ballast to lay on top of your your earth uh, groundwork or or your vegetation. Yeah. Okay. So now we have a beautiful, scenic, uh, functioning model railroad. Yeah. Right? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, i got a few more things there, but they're just— What about lighting? What about lighting for the layout? Not not, not for the structures, but layout lighting. That's a long time ago. That's that's like room construction, you know, getting the room ready. Well, this is your list. You didn't put it at the beginning. (laughs) Well, this was was designed for for, for this client's layout, and the lighting was already done. Oh, okay. you know, there, there, there should be a discussion on room prep. Mm-hmm. You know, are you going to cover up windows? Right. Uh, are you going to have coved corners on your backdrop for your, for, for your backdrop? Right. You know? right. And and then are you going to have night lighting and day lighting or just day lighting? I think you're absolutely going to have night lighting and day lighting. At least I am. I've worked on some layouts. Uh, you know, we talked about structure lighting. You're also going to have traffic lights. Mm. Uh, you need to paint your fascia. Yeah. You know, uh, at the end. Right. After everything else is done. 
Yeah, yeah, because you're going to stain it. You you might paint it a few times, you know. I've painted uh, mine several times, yeah. <laughs> you're going to drip stuff easy on things, it. I guess, oh, let me freshen this up with a little. Uh, right. You want to keep a gallon of that fascia color handy uh, because you're going to you're going to be using it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, so, so adding uh, you know lighting to structures, uh, power for animation, anything like that. You know, uh, nine volt and twelve volt DC systems. That's a whole another can of worms uh, to talk about. But, uh, and that you know that requires planning ahead of time too, and running power for all that stuff. Because you know you, most of the time when you put a structure and you're going to have lighting, you've got to you've got to put holes down through the layout to bring power to them, stuff like that. Speaking of holes in the layout, yeah. you know, I, I don't know if this is another topic for one of your videos or something we can we'll just touch on now, but you've got a structure. Yeah. You can glue it down. You can make it removable. Yeah. Or you can build a diorama base and drop the diorama base into your railroad. Right. Um, and every structure is going to be a little different, but mm -hmm. sometimes you can overbuild the diorama base and make it kind of difficult to install in your layout Does you speak from experience <laughs> yeah well you know i look at i look at for example every time i see a model in a contest it's like mm -hmm. oh wow look it's it's a removable diorama base no it's not it's a diorama base that'll never get installed in a layout mm -hmm. because it wasn't made to fit in a layout and layout design isn't isn't perfect squares mm-hmm of uh with structures and scenery around it they're they're odd angles and right. and you want to hide the edges of a diorama base if you're going to uh, insert right. them maybe it's more like a jigsaw puzzle yeah yeah, yeah. um may, maybe you're using your scenery to cover your edge and mm -hmm. so there, there's that that's a whole other so, topic hiding yeah it's a whole other topic hiding but edges and and places where uh, uh, uh sections come together and access hatches and things like that. How to hide those and yeah, you know, do you, yeah. Do you make it on a on a framed piece of plywood or an unframed piece of plywood if you're going to make a diorama base? Right. Because if it's framed, you're going to have to do some cut work to your bench work to make it really drop so, in. So it drops in. There's a lot of creative solutions that have been done or that you will think of and learn eventually mm -hmm. as, as, as you build and, yeah. and trying to get that to work just right. So you can take your fancy contest model off your layout mm -hmm. and take it down to the show and, and get a trophy. And well, then, you know, I think that is a great way to wrap all this up. You brought it all full circle. You brought it back around. <laughs> to the show models, which we were talking about at the beginning. We've built, we started at a convention with show models. We, we built an entire layout and now we're back uh, uh, with the model at the, uh, on the convention floor that plugs perfectly into our beautiful imaginary layout that we made. That's, that's a great way to wrap it up, Jake. I want to thank you so much for joining me here on the Thunder Mesa Limited Podcast. You know, you're the only guest I've had on three times so far. You are, well, because you're always so interesting to talk to, and you always have such great insights, and you always say yes. So that's why you've been on three times. <laughs> well, you'll get down, you'll go through your list, and somebody else will be number three, and, and, and then, you know, we can have a three-timers club, kind of like they do on Saturday Night we'll get Live. You some, have we'll, we'll have jackets made. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jackets and business cards for everybody. Little badges 
uh, or, or little merit badges three times on the Thunder Mesa podcast. Well, we have a club going already, Dave. Anybody that's built anything from Thunder Mesa or Nature's Wonderland that's is in true. that club. We, that's we do. You, we have me, a... Sam, and Bob Shegog. Right. Dave. I, I, Dave, she, Dave Shegog, yeah. Dave, Dave Shegog, yes. Yeah, Sorry. there's a few others. Yeah, there's a few others. Yeah, and I'm not saying there aren't. R- Randy Summershoe is building right a, 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 a layout based on the Calico Mountain. So there's 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 quite a few. It's it's spawned out. The club out is expanding. Universe. It is, yeah. Yeah, there's a few out there. Well, my friend, I'm going to let you go to bed. It's late there in Colorado. That's great. All right? All right, Dave. I take will, care. I'll talk to you soon. All right, thank you that so much. Good. And that is our show for this time. Thank you so much for tuning in, and a big thanks again to Jake Johnson. You can find Jake over on Instagram at jake.johnson.maker. I'll be back here soon with episode 205 of the Thunder Mesa Limited podcast. Until then, you can catch me over on YouTube doing model railroad builds and how-tos on the Thunder Mesa Studio YouTube channel. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss a single episode. And you can do that via direct RSS feed at thundermesa.studio slash podcasts or on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever fine podcasts are streaming. If you want to help get Thunder Mesa Studios podcasts and videos on the air, please consider joining our Patreon campaign. Our patrons get early access and exclusive content for as little as $3 a month. You can find out more at patreon.com slash thundermesa. And now, folks... I've got me a train to catch. Keep moving forward, amigos. Adios for now.